that this morning. <laughs> we'll see about that. Um, man, I tell you, this journey of faith we've been on, it's been really incredible. It has challenged my own life. I, I have sensed from many of you that God has been at work in your lives through it. Um, and uh, within our hearts, and we're excited. We're excited to step out and to walk by faith and to see what God is going to do to get out of our comfort zone and to, to make a difference as we walk by faith. However, this is also a time when I think Satan likes to attack us. He likes to bring up the fears, the insecurities um, in our hearts, and uh, then we start to make excuses to God, excuses reasons that we want to maybe just stay in our comfort zone uh, instead of stepping out in faith and leading the way. So that's where we're headed today. Um, I looked up online and there are lots of different fears and excuses that are listed out there. I, I have some insecurities up here and some fears, but if you look up phobias, there's hundreds and hundreds. I mean, you can come up with a phobia for anything. I, I'm scared of this speaker here. It's going to swallow me whole. I don't know. You know what I mean? But people have real fears, and there are many, many fears, and Satan can use those to discourage us from acting in faith. So here are some fears and some insecurities, all right? Um, So what happens is our fears and our insecurities kind of lead us to make excuses. And so I've got a list of funny excuses to share with you guys today. Uh, Here's a few. Uh, Teacher, where's your homework? Uh, I lost it fighting this kid who said you weren't the best teacher in school. That's a pretty good one, right? I mean, teacher's going to have a hard time being mad at the student for that. Um, uh, The one up in the corner, I didn't do my math homework, but I've developed an algorithm that explains why. (laughs) Or uh, this one down here, doctor says it will take at least two days to regrow them. Oh, I wish I could give you my homework, but I tragically lost my arms last night. (laughs) I didn't know that other stuff was that part, but I thought that was funny what the girl said there. Um, here's a good one. Okay, the, the farmer's going out to get himself a chicken, and they've all got their excuses for why they shouldn't be the one. <laughs> all right, if you get pulled over by a policeman, here's some good ones. I was on my way to bring you donuts. <laughs> I was racing, racing home to watch cops, right? I thought you wanted to race me. Okay, different excuses. I've got some more here. I've got a list of them. And I just, I had to share some of these with you because I just found them really funny. Here's some excuses for missing work. I, my wife got a bad dye job, and I had to stay home to provide moral support. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, my dog hid my car keys. I could see that happening. I could see that happening. Here's a good one. This comes from a woman. You've got to note this. I'm having trouble with my prostate. Okay, uh, skipping out of work early. My furnace won't stop running, and the goldfish are getting poached. (laughs) Okay. I need to break into my kid's piggy bank before he gets home. (laughs) Um, Oh, I highlighted some goons in here. Okay, this one, I I don't believe in reincarnation in any way, but this was really funny. A friend of mine is being reincarnated, and I have to get to the zoo. (laughs) Oh, that was a pretty good one. Um, uh, my comfort zone and I are sipping our coffee and enjoying some bonding time. I don't like to leave my comfort zone. <laughs> so there's a good excuse. 
Uh, these are excuses for not doing something or not going out with somebody. I'm trying to be less popular. Someone has to do it. Okay? Uh, I need to plant my watermelon seeds. Yes, I know it's the middle of winter. Duh, I'm getting a head start this year. <laughs> okay. Um, this is excuses for not turning in homework. I didn't do it because I didn't want to add to my teacher's heavy workload. <laughs> I let somebody copy it, but they never gave it back to me. You don't want to use that excuse. Not a good excuse to use. Uh, a couple more. Oh, yeah, I gave it to a homeless man to line his hat. <laughs> That's what I did with my homework. Okay. Another student fell in a lake, and I jumped in to rescue him, but unfortunately, my homework drowned. <laughs> oh, we can come up with lots of creative excuses for why not to do something. But today we're going to look at an example from Moses. And uh, in the life of Moses, we're going to see that he was called by God and he was struggling with those excuses that he was offering to God for why he couldn't follow. And as we're looking at this journey of faith and we're, we're excited to step out and, and walk with God and see what he does in our lives and the fear and the insecurities come in, and they make us want to think of excuses why we can't do something for God. We need to look at this text as our example, okay? Um, there's even some excuses that I had found in the Bible, and we're not going to go to those. Uh, Jonah, he's like, I know God was gracious and compassionate. That's why I didn't want to do what he asked me to do. That's a terrible excuse, you know? He, he didn't like God's, the fact that God wanted to be merciful, and so he made this excuse not to go to Nineveh. Um, there's a parable, too, where Jesus shares where friends were invited to a banquet and the friends made excuses like, oh, I've got to go check on some land I just bought. I mean, that's a real good excuse to miss a banquet, right? And there's a couple other excuses. Well, today we're going to look at a man who was called to lead God's people, but he struggled. He struggled to believe that what God called us to do, he can enable us for. Instead of that, he made excuses and he almost missed out on the greatness of God. And so we're going to go to Exodus chapters 3 and 4 and We've got to catch up. We've been on the life of Abraham for a long time now, and, and some of you might be saying, as we enter our passage today, how did the Israelites end up in captivity in Egypt? Okay, why don't I start with our passage, Exodus 3, 1 through 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near me. Take your sandals off, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, listen to this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a pla the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, 
and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And that's our passage today. And to kind of catch us up to how did the Israelites all all of a sudden end up captive in Israel, we're just going to kind of chase up to this point real briefly. You remember we were talking about Isaac, and Abraham's last wish was to help Isaac get a godly wife. And he found Rebekah, and they got married, okay? And they had children, Jacob and Esau, okay? We know the situation with Jacob. He actually goes back and uh, lives with Laban because there was tension between Jacob and Esau. And Isaac wanted Jacob to go find a, a godly wife from their family line again, kind of like Abraham. So in this case, Jacob goes back there. He flees away from Esau. He meets um, Rachel and Leah, we know that he loves Rachel. He tries to work for her as his wife. He ends up getting tricked, marries Leah. Then after that, marries Rachel um, and works for 14 years for Laban. After that, he leaves Laban. They part ways because they're having tension because God was blessing Jacob. And everything that Jacob asked for, the sheep and the cattle and everything, they were being born the way that he requested so that they became his. And and Laban kept losing out on all this, so there was some frustration and tension there. So Jacob leaves, and he's headed back towards the promised land, okay? He's been back up in Haran again. Now he's headed back towards the promised land, and he settles in Bethlehem, okay? And Jacob has 12 sons. The last of his sons was Benjamin, and Rachel passed away in the birth of Benjamin. Okay, we also know from the story of Joseph, right? Joseph was his favored son, Joseph was favored by Isaac, but he was despised by his brothers. And so what they do? They threw him in a well. Some camel traders, a caravan went through. And so they say, hey, better than letting them die in this well, let's get some money for him. So they sold him into slavery, and he's carried off into Egypt. So Joseph ends up in Egypt. We know that he goes through some hardships there, but God blesses him, right? And out of those hardships, he becomes in a, in a great position just underneath Pharaoh in Egypt. And it is through Joseph that God saves the people of Israel, Joseph's family, right? Because there's a great famine over all the land, and God uses Joseph's position to be able to save his family line. But through that, his family moves to Egypt, and they're given land in that area. And, uh, but what happens later is we find out that a new pharaoh comes into Egypt, okay, a new pharaoh, and he does not remember who Joseph is or what he's done or the, the specialness of his family. And so we pick up with that really here in Exodus to get our context. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through 14 talks about that. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So we know that the the, the people of Israel, they've grown. They've expanded. There's many of them at this point. And the new Pharaoh says, they're too many and, and, and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, let, lest they multiply and, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with many heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities. Um, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Okay, and so we know out of that comes the story of 
the Pharaoh wanting to kill all the, the firstborn males in the land. And, uh, but the midwives, they fear the Lord, and so they don't do that. And out of that comes the story of Moses, right? And he's put in a basket in the river, and he's brought into the Pharaoh's family. And that kind of brings us up to speed. So we see how the nation of Israel, God's people, in light of all this promise, end up being enslaved in Egypt because of this different Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph. And out of that comes the story of Moses, where we are today, and God's work of bringing the people back out from under that slavery. And you have to ask yourself this question, okay, did God foresee all this coming? Remember when we were in Genesis chapter 15, talking about the life of Abraham, there was something that God said. Verses 13 and 14, listen to this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The Lord knew all of this was going to happen. He saw it all ahead of time. He had even told Abraham about it. And again, we see a fulfilled prophecy, really, in Scripture here, um, where God foresaw this was going to happen. And now he's at the moment where he is going to work something great for their deliverance. Then we find out that something happens in the life of Moses. As he is a prince of Egypt, we would assume that he was educated, he was trained well, um, but he knew where he came from. Even though he was adopted into Pharaoh's family at a young age, he knew where he came from. We pick that up in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And look at this. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Okay, he knew they were his people, and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the, who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Well, who makes you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Okay, so Moses has committed an act of murder. It was spurred on, actually, for his love for his people. What a weird position to be in as a, a prince of Egypt, adopted into the family of Pharaoh, and yet looking on your people that you knew you came from and seeing them in slavery and being heavily burdened. And, and he was compelled to do something about that, and so he commits this act of murder. Well, it gets discovered, and so Moses runs away. And he runs to Midian, and in Midian is where he meets his wife, Zipporah, they get married, and he becomes a shepherd. And this is the point where we pick up in our text today. Moses is a shepherd, and he is out watching over a flock of sheep, and God appears to him. Okay, so verses 1 through 7, God appears to Moses. Okay, and there's a couple of significant things to notice about this appearance that God makes. First of all, verse 1, or... uh, Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. This is the bush that wouldn't burn. And um, I don't know if any of you have actually seen a burning bush. They're really, really beautiful. My mom has one in her landscape, and it's bright, fiery red, beautiful-looking bush. But the idea of a 
bush that's on fire, and yet the leaves and everything don't burn. And, you know, I assume after this, after God spoke during this moment and the flame went away, the bush is just normal and green and lush again. To me, this is beyond comprehension. A um, couple important things to note about that. It, it got it, Moses' attention, didn't it? It says that Moses turned and he's like, whoa, what's this? i got to go check this out. That was his reaction. So, so God got his attention through something that you just don't normally see, okay, through a miracle. Um, there's a couple important things to notice. In those days, um, fire was a symbol of deity. And so to see this fire automatically would have, in, in their minds, made them think something godly is happening here, okay? Um, there's also a parallel in the idea of the burning bush. If we look ahead, God will be destroying the Egyptians and yet, at the same time, the Israelites are not going to be consumed, right? They're going to be brought out of that. So you could see that this is symbolic of something special that's going to happen as God appears in this burning bush that is not consumed. Okay, the next thing we see is Moses' response. It's the same as Abraham's was. He says, here am I. He's saying, um, I'm ready to listen and respond to whatever you say. And then we see God's introduction. God's introduction to Moses. First of all, he says, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Um, when I was raised, you take your shoes off before you come in the house. My mom was pretty strict about that. And so that was just a habit throughout my life. But I also knew, it was, it was taught to me that that was a sign of respect. So when I would go and visit somebody at their house, it was natural for me to start taking my shoes off unless that person says, oh, you can leave your shoes on. You know what I mean? So it was a sign of respect to their dwelling to say, I'm going to take my shoes off before I enter in. Of course, in the, in the Eastern culture, they would typically take their shoes off anytime they would go in for any kind of worship to a god. So that was part of their culture. And also there's a symbolic the- idea here behind the fact that when we're walking around, we're getting dirt and filth, worldly filth on our shoes, or our sandals in this case. And so, if we're coming into the presence of something holy, we remove those shoes. Okay? We know in the New Testament later on, they, um, they would wash their feet, right? They would wash their feet. Okay, so there's a lot of symbolic... There's music coming through the speaker up here. It's real quiet, but it's a little bit distracting. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Um, So anyway, as Moses appears before God, the first statement that God is making, first of all, is I'm miraculous because of what he saw happen with the burning bush. But the second thing is I am holy. God is saying I am holy. And so when you come before me, you remove your shoes, you remove the dirt and the filth of the Lord, and you come into my presence with respect. Okay? And so this is God's introduction to Moses. The next thing that he shares, the next thing that he shares with Moses is, I have a history with your people, with your family. And you see that in the next part of the interaction of the text. Um, Moses says to him, he says, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look on God. And so God reminds Moses, okay, I've got a history here. 
I'm showing you who I am, I'm showing you my holiness, and I'm showing you I've got a history with your people, with your family. And then the third thing that God shows Moses about himself in this introduction is that I am a God of compassion. I am a God of compassion. Okay, and there's some important words said. Verse 7, I want you guys to see this. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. He's seen the affliction. He's heard the cry. He knows the sufferings. If you remember back when we talked about faith through trials and through the struggles and difficulties that we face in life, that we needed to remember that God sees and knows what we're going through, and he cares about that. And here we see God stating this to Moses. I'm a God of compassion. I see and know what's going on, and I care about it, and I'm about to do something. So in God's introduction to Moses, we see the holiness of God. We see him revealing the history. I've been interacting with your family, Moses, for a while. Okay, And we also see the compassion and the character of God displayed to Moses. Then God asked Moses to lead his people, verses 8 through 10. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Verse 10, God says, Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So two important things to notice here. God already has a plan and a purpose which he is carrying out. He says, I've come down. I've come down to deliver my people. He's personally come down to accomplish this. But then he says to Moses, he invites Moses to be a part of what he's doing. Uh, There's a study called Experiencing God, which is a very, very good Bible study to work through. And uh, in that study, the main principle that they're teaching you is that God is always at work around us. And we need to notice where God is at work, and we need to join with him. We need to join with him and see what he accomplishes. And you see that principle laid out right here. God is already at work. He's come down to deliver the people, and then he invites Moses and says, come join me in this. I've got a purpose for you as a part of my plan to accomplish this. Okay? So that's important to note as God asks Moses to lead his people. Then we go to the next portion of the passage. Moses' excuses and God's responses. Moses' excuses and God's responses. Starting in verse 11, and we're not going to read all the pieces of this passage because it's quite long, but I want to note in verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses' first excuse is kind of, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be asked to do this. All right, let's think about where Moses has just been. He's a murderer. He's run away from Egypt. He's a shepherd. Okay, there's people back in Egypt that know what he had done. Who am I, God, that you would ask me to do something for you? We all fall into that trap, don't we? Lord, I'm not not worthy of this calling. You've asked me to do it, but I don't feel like I can do that. And so we, we wait and see if he'll use somebody else. Why don't, why don't you ask so-and-so, who am I? Okay, why would you choose me? Do we believe that God can use us? Well, God's response to Moses is what? Verse 12. 
he says, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God's first reply to him is, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Isn't that enough, Moses? Now remember, when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham really demonstrated to us that blind faith you talk about. God asked, Abraham's like, okay, let's go. We're going to pack up and we're going to move. I don't know where, I don't know when, I don't know how, but I'm going to do that because God asked. Here we see Moses struggling a little bit more than Abraham did. He's struggling with fears, insecurities, some excuses before God. Okay, and here God says, I'll be with you. And when all of that's done, you're going to come back here to this mountain, and that's where God was going to give him the Ten Commandments. Okay, and meet with him again. And so God tells him that's going to be a sign to you that this was all a part of my plan. Did he directly answer Moses' question of who am I that I should do this? Not really. I, I believe that God was challenging him to just take that leap of faith. But Moses isn't quite ready yet. Okay, so then we see the next part, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What does this really boil down to? In my mind, it boiled down to, uh, I'm not able. I don't have the knowledge of you. I need to convince them of their authority. Remember, he's just been, he's just met God. He's just met God, and God has introduced himself to him, and, and he's raised in the house uh, in the, under the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so he, maybe he feels insecure that he doesn't have the knowledge of God to actually lead the people as a leader. Um, God's response to that is, I am who I am. God describes, okay, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Okay? And in the term, I am who I am, I want to read what somebody else described what that means, because I thought it was really good. He is self-existent. He has his being in himself. He is eternal and unchangeable, always the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is incomprehensible. We cannot, by searching, find him out. This name answers all bold and curious inquiries concerning God, that he is faithful and true to all his promises, unchangeable in his word as well as in his nature. Let Israel know this. I am has sent me unto you. I am, and there is no one else besides me. All else have their being from God and are wholly dependent upon him. So this was one person's description of God's statement, I am who I am. All the meaning that's packed into just that phrase in describing who God is to Moses. The terms Yahweh and Jehovah really come from this description, I am, that God gives him. And, and the idea behind Jehovah is, is that I'm here, I'm ready to help. Yahweh, I am here and I am ready and help. So if you really want to sum all of this up, what God is saying to Moses is, I'm eternal, I'm almighty, I'm all-knowing, I'm faithful and true, and I am the one who is here, ready to help. That's what you can tell the people about me. And that should be enough. But not only that, in verse 17, God gives him his word in response to this. He says, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land. And he continues on, okay, God gives a legally binding promise, okay, that he will fulfill, that says, I will bring you out, I will accomplish this, okay? And then he even goes on to describe 
how he is going to do this. He describes how um, the Pharaoh will resist letting the people go and how God will perform miracles and how then the people will leave. And when they leave, they will leave with great possessions. Just like he said way back to Abraham in Genesis, they will leave with great possessions. The people of Egypt will just give them gold and, and gifts. Okay, so God describes this to Moses. So he tells him about who he is. He gives him that promise. He says, I give you my word. That will bring you out. And he tells him how he's going to accomplish it in response to Abraham, Moses saying, I'm not able. Okay, so then we get to the next part of the passage, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to them, What is it in your hand? And he goes on to share different miracles that Moses can perform. Okay, so Moses' question here really is, How am I going to prove this? How am I going to prove this to the people when I come to them? And God says, well, let me show you what I can do. Let me show you what I'm going to help you be able to do. And I have to say that interaction would have been, I keep wanting to jump ahead, that interaction with God would have been really, really amazing. I mean, God says, take the staff, throw it down, it turns into a serpent. And uh, I don't like snakes at all. My kids will actually touch and play with snakes, which to me is just wrong. But anyway, here... Moses says he, he gets back, and he's a little bit afraid. And God says, go pick up that snake by the tail. I'm thinking, eh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but Moses goes and picks it up by the tail, turns into a staff again, right? Then he says, put your hand in your cloak, pulls it out, and it's leprous. Put it back in, pull it out, and it's healed again. He says, throw some water on the ground, and I will turn it into blood. So God is demonstrating to Moses his power and his capability and he's saying, this is the kind of stuff I'm going to help you do, which is going to enable you to prove to the people that you're the man I sent to bring you out of Egypt, but also to prove to Pharaoh, you know, that he wants to let the people go. Okay, so this is what's going on. We see one more excuse, verses 10 through 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. There's a sense here that God's getting a little harsher and a little stronger with his tone of speech because Moses is really really making excuses and squirming and trying to get around what God is asking him to do. And so God is getting stronger with him. Okay? And so his excuse is, I can't speak in front of people. I'm not eloquent to speak. You know, honestly, I find this hard to believe. I didn't look up the history on this, but if, if Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh as one of his sons, I have to believe that he was extremely well-educated and probably capable of speaking and probably pretty in-depth in his knowledge because of where he was raised. And yet in this case, he, he, he makes this excuse to God. And God gives him this, you know, brief, simple science lesson. Who made your mouth? You know, I'm the one in charge of who is deaf, mute, seeing, blind. We, we saw a few weeks ago, God's the one in charge of opening and shutting the womb, right? 
He says, I can enable or disable whatever I please. Is basically the statement God makes to Moses. I'm kind of amazed at God's patience that we see here with Moses, really. I think as a parent, I'm way less patient than that. <laughs> but we see God's example here where he is extremely patient towards Moses. Um, and he basically says to Moses in response, I will be with your mouth. And I was thinking of the meaning of this. I used to play trumpet back in high school a little bit. And it's kind of like Moses is this mouthpiece. And it can't do a whole lot on its own. But God says, you know, I'm the instrument. And I'm the wind going through the mouthpiece. And when you put all of that together, it can accomplish great things. And so God is saying, I will be with your mouth. I will make your mouth accomplish what I desire it to. There's a similar passage that I want to jump to in Jeremiah, where God interacts with Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you, okay, God is speaking to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Okay, God had a purpose for Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah responds, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But what did the Lord say to him? Do not say I'm only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand, put out his hand, and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to him, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Similar reaction to what went on with Moses. God is saying, I will be the one that enables you to speak. I will be the one that enables you to lead. Sadly enough, as we move on in the passage, Moses angers God with his response. After God has refuted each of the excuses that Moses has given, we go to verse 13 through 16, and what do we see? But Moses said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Send someone else. I don't want to do it. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he says, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth, with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. So really, Moses acts in disobedience here, and we again see God's grace and his compassion to say, I still want to use you. You made all these excuses. I've answered those excuses, and you're still saying, Lord, choose somebody else. And God is giving him grace in this moment to say, I still want to use you. I still see potential in you, Moses. There is a cost to it, though, isn't there? If you guys look ahead, you'll see that Aaron was the one kind of left in charge of the people at Mount Sinai. And he kind of oversees the building of this calf and the worshiping of this calf while Moses is up on the mountain. And so there's a cost to the fact that kind of Aaron is brought in as part of helping Moses to speak and to lead the people. There's a cost to his disobedience and to his lack of acting in faith. How many times do we miss out on God's best by saying, well, somebody else will do that? Oh, that lady looks like she needs help. Uh, maybe that guy will help him, help her. 
How many times do we miss out on God's best? You know, this story is really personal to me. Um, when I was in high school, many of my friends would ask me uh, if I was going to be a pastor. Uh, because they thought I'd be good at it. They'd say, you would, be a, you would make a really good pastor. And I would say, no way, no way, I'm not going to do that. When I went to college, I felt, that, I felt that pull and that inner struggle inside of me. I knew God was calling me to ministry. I knew that's what he wanted. But I kept making excuses. I kept saying, Look, that's not for me. I, I can't do that. Um, and I want you to listen to, these are thoughts that went through my mind, and I want you to hear them because they're so similar to what went on with Moses. God continued to pursue me as I was giving excuses. I went off to try to get a bachelor's degree in business. I thought, oh, I want to get in business. I want to make money, blah, blah, blah. And these are the things that I said in my heart. First of all, I'm not worthy, Lord. I've done things that I'm ashamed of, and I'm not a leader-type person, okay? Who am I? Kind of like what Moses said, okay? Lord, I'm a pastor's kid. I hardly know the Bible compared to many other kids my age. What have I to offer? I felt ashamed of the fact that I was raised as a pastor's kid and I didn't know the Bible nearly as well as a lot of my friends. And I felt ashamed of that. Lord, I'm not good at speaking in front of people. When I tried to give speeches, I would stumble. I would get so nervous that, that I would shake. I, I can't do this, God. Lord, I've been a pastor's kid. I, I, I want to make good money and provide for my family. I know what a pastor's family goes through. I'd seen that. And so that was one of my excuses to say, choose someone else. Choose someone else, God. That's not the life I want. Well, before my sophomore year of college began, my dad was going to a Bible conference, and I went with him. And at the Bible conference, the speaker used this passage, and he described the excuses that he had given God for not going into ministry. And my heart was broken. And I nailed my excuses to the cross that day before God. And I said, God, whatever you want me to do, Lord, wherever you want me to go, I don't care anymore about the other stuff. I just want to be used by you. I know that you will take care of me. I know that you will help me to be able to do it. And the rest of that is history that many of you guys know. But immediately after that, I changed my major to a Bible major. I wanted to learn as much as I could about the Bible. I didn't know how God was going to use me in ministry or what his plan was for my life, but I knew I wanted to know his word and I wanted to know him much better than I did then. And so through those circumstances, God took my excuses, just like he took Moses's, and he gave me grace and he brought me to my knees at a point where I was like, God, I, I see that you blow away all my excuses, that, that they mean nothing in light of who you are, and I want to follow you. And, God, and, and I hope, guys, that as we've gone through this passage today, that's my heart's prayer, as we've made lots of excuses before God for things that he's called us to do in life, that we would come to that point where we'd say, I want to walk by faith, God. Please help me overcome my excuses. Please help me look at who you are and the fact that you are Almighty God and the fact that you are able the fact that you can give me the ability to do whatever you call me to do, even if I feel like I don't have that ability, we need to know those things. 
So where does faith to lead the way? Where does that come from? I'm going to leave us with four points of application. First of all, knowing who God is and who we are in Christ. I think for Moses, part of his struggle was the past, maybe his guilt over the murder that he had committed. And I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of the precious truths of our faith is that no matter what the mistakes or things we're ashamed of in our past have happened, when we come to Christ, when God calls us to be His, and we accept that by faith, we become a new creation. And all that garbage from our past is erased and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all to God. He says, I accept you as you are right here, right now, today, and I'm going to take you forward from here. And we're not looking back at the past. Knowing who God is, knowing who we are in Christ, gives us the confidence to follow by faith. Look at examples in Scripture. Paul, I mean, Paul persecuted Christians. He sentenced them. He jailed them. And yet God got a hold of his life and he turned around and became the greatest missionary for God ever. Look at Peter who denied Christ three times. And Christ meets him on the shore and he says, Come on, Peter. Come follow me. Okay? He says, Feed my sheep, Peter. And he says it three times back to him. And and Christ reassures him, I still have a purpose and a plan for you even though you've made these mistakes. Look at John Newton. Some of you watched the movie Amazing Grace, and I love the story of John Newton, but here's a man who was a slave trader who did evil and wicked things, and yet in the end of his life, God used him in powerful ways, even just through the song Amazing Grace and how that has touched many people's lives throughout the years. You could look at someone like D.L. Moody, who was a drunken alcoholic who stumbled into um, a, a man who led him to the Lord and all that was accomplished through D.L. Moody, the Moody Bible Institute. Okay? Knowing who God is and who we are in Christ, that the past does not matter, is vital to having faith to lead the way. This battery's dying. Knowing what God is capable of. I want to take you to Daniel real quick. We've seen so many times God do amazing things just in the life of Abraham. I want to take you to Daniel chapter 6 and get your perspective from a man who was not a believer in God but observed all that God was capable of. Daniel chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, Peace be unto you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. This is coming from the leader of Babylon, one of the most wicked nations that ever existed. Okay? And this is what he says. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. 
He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Okay, that was the perspective from someone who wasn't even a believer as he saw what God accomplished, saying, wow, this God, this God's amazing. What he wants to accomplish, he will accomplish. Nobody can change that. That's our God, guys. That's our Heavenly Father. We need to remember what God is capable of. And thirdly, we need to believe that God is with us. Believing that God is with us. Genesis 28:15 says, "Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land." This is what God has said. Okay, I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. This is our God. Joshua 1:9 says, "Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go." Isn't that encouraging? when there's that moment where we need to step out in faith and talk to someone to know in our hearts, in our minds, God's with me right now. The God who is capable of doing whatever he pleases and is almighty, he's with me right now. And trust that God will enable us. Trust that God will enable us. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 speak to this. Now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is just a reminder to us that God, what he asks us to do, he says, I will accomplish that. I will enable you to do that. If I've asked it of you, I am the one that's going to be behind you, making you capable of doing that. And I tell you, I, I can't help but think of Shane this morning and uh, the position that he's in right now and how God has enabled him to do some amazing things. And, and, it's, and it's awesome. It's an awesome testimony to see what he's doing, what God is doing there. Because because he's enabling us, because he's with us, because God is capable, and because in Christ we are a new creation. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. I want to thank you for this time in your word. I want to thank you, Lord, um, for the work you've done in my own life to give me confidence even to stand up here today. There's so many times where Satan brings the fear and the insecurity into us to make us shy away from stepping out in faith, to make us shy away from maybe a ministry position that we want to pursue or a mission that we want to go on, Lord, or a person or a neighbor that we need to talk to about Jesus Christ, and the excuses come. And Father God, I pray that we would remember this passage, and we would remember your faithfulness, God. And we would remember, Lord, that you are with us, and you will enable us, Father. And there is a history with you, God, of faithfulness. Lord, help us to remember those things so that we can have faith to lead the way as a church, as spiritual leaders in our homes, as Christian examples in our workplace. God, help us to do this. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Jason? Yeah, thanks.
Thanks, Pastor. It was uh, really encouraging. 